Thank you for joining us at the Center for Spiritual Living. We hope you enjoy this podcast. And for further information, please visit us at spiritualliving.org. So let's talk about mysticism and mystics. I think I'll start this service by giving you my mystical experience story. Um, it's not about me. It's, it's about something that I don't understand. It was not something I was seeking. Um, just, just maybe a little background. Um, we have a, an, an English word, mute. What do you do when you mute something? You turn off the sound. And when you unmute it, you turn the sound on. So the Greek word is myain. And from that word myain, from which the word mute comes, also come the words myth, because myth is unmuted truth that comes from the realm of the invisible through stories. So the invisible is made manifest in myth. Mystery is another word, uh, muain, mute. Mystery is the muted truth in the invisible realm in which we swim like fish in an ocean. So we talk about the mystery. We're not talking about something that can't be seen. We're talking about something that can't be seen yet. And when it reveals itself, unmutes itself, um, through visions, through internal experience, intuition, many different ways. When it unmutes itself, it becomes mystical. Same root word. So a mystic is a person who is, has had truth unmuted. It's been opened. It's been revealed in some form. As experience, not just intellectual information from a book, that's a kind of unmuting, uh, a preparatory unmuting, but the real unmuting or the mystical experience is something that can't be ultimately put into words, although we all will try to. So a mystical experience is the definition I have up here, if you can see it. A person who has been seized by any sort of experience, and experience is the emphasis here, that makes them aware, that's the unmuting, that makes them aware of the one divine presence that originates and animates everything there is. And again, that image of swimming in the mystery, the sea of mystery, uh, which is what we call the one, um, a term that Plotinus and a number of Neoplatonists you know, many hundreds of years ago, beginning with Plato, 400 B.C., said, the best term I can come up with to describe this unknowable is the one. It's not really the one, because that implies two, but the one is the best term we can come up with. And the idea behind the one as that mystery of behind all things is that everything that exists emerges from or emanates from that one. And there's the Hindu version of how that works. There's the Jewish version of how that works. Many Native American versions. Every culture, every religion has some story about that unmuting and how that mystical uh, experience comes to this earth. It's different for everyone. So I want to give you my experience of the unmuting. I was a 19-year-old college student going to Highline Community College studying journalism and creative writing. I had about a C-minus average, so I wasn't spending a lot of time studying. Spent most of my time partying and just having fun. And um, about middle of my second year of college, I came home one day and my mother, my parents had a business and they had rentals and they had really were very, very economically well off and, and did well. But it was a crazy household. My dad was an alcoholic, my mom was the 
stereotypical codependent. They were fighting all the time. It's pretty crazy upbringing. But I came home from college one day, and I walked in the house, and my mother looked at me and said, I've become a Christian. And I knew nothing about religion, nothing. So I didn't know what to make of it, and I just said, well, that's nice, whatever, and went off to my room. And before I got to my room, she said, and by the way, your dad is soon going to become a Christian. And I remember thinking to myself, that's not going to happen. My dad had been struggling with alcohol. He had just actually um, gone one whole year without a drink, and, uh, but he was not a happy guy to live with. It was a crazy house. So my mom started talking to my dad about this new church thing, and he was like, yeah, go to your church and just leave me alone. Well, about four or five months after that, my dad got up one day with a hangover. One morning, I was sitting at the table, and he came out, and he leaned over and said to my mom, I want to go talk to the pastor of this church you're going to. And I remember thinking, this is really weird. He did. That day, they went to the church. I took off to college. But when I got home, my dad was sitting at the kitchen table with a Bible, of all things, reading the Bible. And I walked in, and I saw him reading the Bible, and I thought, this is really getting super weird. And he looked up at me, and he said, do you know Jesus? And I said, I'm not really sure. I don't think so. And he said, let me tell you about Jesus. And he told me a little bit, and I remember sitting there thinking, this, these two have turned into religious wackos. I went to my room and just observed for the next few weeks. I thought, we'll see how this turns out. Well, it turned out pretty well. I mean, they quit fighting. They started going to church together. My dad didn't take another drink for his entire life. He's now 95 years old, and it's been 40 years since he's had a drink. And um, things got much better in the house. So that impressed me. I thought, something's happened here that's really a, a game changer. And... Um, about, I don't know, what it was, two or three months into this, I thought, I've got to read this little book they're reading, this Bible thing. So I got a little green Gideon New Testament that I had from, I think, sixth grade. They used to hand them out in schools before they stopped. And um, I opened this little green New Testament, and the Gospel of Matthew is at the beginning of it. And I started reading the Gospel of Matthew, and for the next three nights in my bedroom, with the door locked, I did not want any friends or family coming in and catching me reading spiritual pornography. That's kind of the way I looked at it at the time. I was like, I don't want anybody to catch me with this. So I read through the Gospel of Matthew, and I finished the, on the third night, I finished the story of his death, resurrection, and ascension. I don't remember being super impressed by it, but I read it. Put the little green New Testament down, turn the lights out. Lying there on my back, I remember looking out the rectangular window out in Enumclaw, dark night, out, my, out the window and the stars in the sky. And I heard something that was clear. It wasn't audible, but it was so clear. And it simply said, believe. It startled me. It was so clear. And I responded by telepathically or mentally asking, believe what? And it just repeated, believe. And I hadn't really ever prayed before, so I folded my hands, because I'd seen them do that on television. I folded my hands and I said, I believe. I went to sleep. Next morning, I got up, went out, had breakfast, went out to the car to drive off to, to school. And on the way to my car in Enumclaw, it was December, cloudy sky, a little bit of sun coming through here and there, I remember looking up at the sky and I froze in my tracks because it was as if the whole universe 
not literally, but at some level, everything in the universe came together like the image that came to my mind was, imagine you're living in a box with 50,000 puzzle pieces in it, and they're all scattered. And suddenly, they just all come together and make a tapestry or an image that is clear, and you can see that you are one little piece of that puzzle, which I could see at that moment, and I fit in. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had that experience where I thought, I'm here for a reason, as you were talking about earlier. I'm here for a reason, and everything is here for a reason. This whole universe is knit together, even in the midst of the chaos, it all has some kind of order behind it. That's a mystical experience. I, the, the confusion and the disintegration and the chaos suddenly came together there was an unmuting, and that's a mystical experience. And that's what started me on the journey that got me here this morning. From that time on, I became fascinated with that experience, that mystical experience. I went off to a Bible college in Montana. By the way, my grade point went from 1.8 to 3.8 that quarter. I quit partying. I quit doing all that stuff. I Confession. Came to the, the, uh, the girlfriend that I was dating at the time and said... Uh, no more sex. She said, what? I said, no more sex. She said, why? I said, I don't know. It just seems like the right thing to do. So it wasn't like I suddenly became this sort of moral uh, Puritan, but there was something in me that said, devote your time and your energy to the study of Scripture and all things related, philosophy, psychology, whatever it was, and I did. Um, my whole life came together. Now... The story goes like this. I went off to the Bible college. I studied. I did well. All I did was sports and study. And this went on for the first year at college, and um, it was bliss. I mean, I can't even explain it. I didn't know anything about New Thought. I don't think I've ever shared this before. But we had to write a, a paper to, to graduate, and I wrote a paper on um, psychocybernetics. If you remember that, Maxwell Maltz, I think it was, how, you know, the mind, matter, Thing. I wrote a paper on it, and I remember that first year in college, I was so connected to this unified presence, the one, that I would think something and it would happen. And I was in a state of mind where it wasn't I was thinking about Porsche you know, or, or money, that sort of thing. I, I remember one instance, I needed $6 to register for the college. And at the time, I didn't have any money. This is before I went to the college. But I was in this state of consciousness, and I remember thinking, I just need $6 by tomorrow to register to go to this college. And I swear to the living presence of God, the one, my mom came back from the mailbox with an envelope from Harry Oldenberger, a guy that was at the church. And he sent me a $5 bill and a $1 bill and a letter that said, I was moved to send you $6. I had mentioned this to no one. I'm sharing this because these kinds of things were happening like dominoes following. It, if, if I needed something that was part of my purpose and life process, it wasn't I want this because it'll make me feel better. It was I'm clearly called to do this and whatever I needed in this call started to fall just into place. And this happened for about a year. It was like I was living in another galaxy, this mystical galaxy. Now, as we move forward into this, about a year into it, I began to feel this, this presence, this mystical presence subside. It was like it started to pull away from me, and it, it troubled me a little bit at first, but I thought, well, it, it'll come back because this is where I'm going to live from now on. Well, it eventually evaporated completely, 
And I remember after the year going by, going into a deep, dark depression. Subsequently, as I studied mythology, it's the underworld experience. It's Hades. And by the way, by the way, I love words. The word Hades is related to the word ideas. If you look at the word ideas and Hades together, you can see that the Greeks named the underworld realm the realm of ideas. Pluto, who is the, the, the riches that you go underground in order to mine through the rock and the dirt in order to find wisdom you can't find in the above ground. So I was pulled into Hades, and I didn't know at the time that I was being pulled into this dark place for another kind of mystical experience, but I was pulled into it, and I wasn't suicidal, but if you've ever been in that state of mind where you feel like, I don't really care if I live or die, because compared to what I had, this is just horrible. Well, as I was in this state of mind, I came to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament which I had set myself to memorize at that point in my life. And the passage of Scripture was in 1 John. Keep in mind, I'm in this place of a year-long mystical experience, this connection to the One, and then I go into this place of darkness and and depression. And here's what I read. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John, supposedly, wrote this as he's writing a letter. He said, I write to you, this is the audience he's writing to you, I write to you, dear infants, because you have known the Father. And the Greek word there for knowledge is gnosis, and it's essentially saying, I'm writing to a group of you that are infants in Christ, your spiritual infants, your uh, mystic infants. And what characterizes you is the idea of you're acquainted with the Father. You know the presence of God like a child in the arms of Papa holding you, loving you, talking to you. That's the first group. And if it stopped there, it would be fine. But he goes on and he says, I also write to you adolescents because you are strong and the word, logos, of God lives in you and you have overcome the challenges of life. So here's a second group of people. It's as if John is saying, I know there are certain mystics in your midst who have just come to know the Father and they're in that mode of consciousness where the mystical experience is one of being wrapped in this sort of warm blanket and, and hugs. It's just so, so sweet. But I also know that some of you are in a mystical mode of consciousness like teenagers. You've left the, the nursery. You're now out in life because you have to grow up. Because a mystic isn't a person who is just always in the presence of the light, according to this, this passage. A mystic is a person who comes into the light, but then must go out through the valley of soul-making or through the journey to the promised land. Many different analogies in all the world's religions and mythologies. Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. You've got to go out and become adolescents where you grow up. The challenges of life come along. Those things that, you know, you go home and write the ennui poetry that you did when you were a teenager. Broken hearts, missed opportunities. So John is saying that there is a kind of mysticism, a kind of spiritual experience that is different than infancy. It's a place where you're going through challenges. And the Word, the Logos, the living presence of the the living Holy Spirit has to come and learn to dwell in you and move you through these valleys and challenges. So this is going to be a tough part of, of the mystical journey. He doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, I write to you mature ones. You see the progression here. I write to you mature ones because you know, again, gnosis, the same word that's used for infants. I write to you mature ones because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I love that last phrase. The idea is that you began as a mystic in the infant, in infant stage, and then you went through probably, if you live long enough, many decades, maybe many lifetimes. You go through many experiences in adolescence where we go into those valleys where somebody offends us or says or does something that you know, makes the, the great mystic fall from their heights into the depths and you go, oh, crap, I'm still human. And you go through these adolescent experiences, but be assured, this third group, that you are moving to a destination, and that is maturity. The nostoi, the mature ones, the Gnostics called them. The perfectoi, those who have come to the place where they are so ensconced in the infinite mystery of the one that that, that presence is not like when you were a child being cuddled by the infinite, but you're in a place where you are so connected to the infinite that it flows through you like fountains of living water, as Jesus said. Now, from this passage, as I sat there reading it in my state of Hades depression, it dawned on me that there are different kinds of mystical experiences. And I'm going to move to that slide. So what this all suggests to me is this. Each of us is four kinds of mystics. And the, the, the most difficult thing about this talk is it starts to sound like a formula, and it's not a formula. This is just a way to sort of make some sense of this crazy life that once we have come in contact with the infinite one, the mystical experience, that it can show up, as John's little letter says, mystic, mysticism can show up in many different ways. And if you look at this slide, this woman ascending the mystical ladder I'm going to suggest that there is a stage of mysticism or a mode of mystical knowing that's called the egoistic mystic. And the egoistic mystic is kind of the infant stage where when I have the mystical experience or the experience with the one, it's all about me. It's not necessarily a conscious thing and it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. There is my experience with the one and my predominant thought in the egoistic mystic stage is, what have you done for me lately? God, give me. I remember when I first came over to uh, the Religious Science Church before it became CSL, this is like 1987-88. I was still a minister in the Evangelical Free Church, but I was dabbling out there in the heretical cults um, as I was in the church. And I came over and I talked with Reverend Jim Munson, who preceded Kathy Ann, and we sat down one day and had this long, long talk, and he told me what you know, went on in this church. And I started coming over. I went to Seebeck, actually, the year he was there and did a class on... Um, he asked me to do a class on the Bible and sexuality, which shocked the hell out of me, because I thought, well, you can actually talk about that here. That's cool. Um, so I came in, I started taking classes, and I started learning about treatment and prayer, and my immediate thought was, wow, since I am so connected to the one... I'm going to do treatment to get me stuff. I want a better job. I want a better house. I want a better everything. That's the egoistic mystic. Now, do not hear the word ego as negative here. It's all in God. My, my sense of this is it all in the one. And in the one is the little I that comes out of the big I. The little I am that comes out of the big I am. And the, the, the little I am mystic has to have the experience of it's all about me. Scott Peck talks about this in The Different Drum, that the first stage of spiritual growth is self-centeredness, survival. 
But it comes to an end because it doesn't satisfy. That's Hinduism has this beautiful teaching that says that in the beginning, the Rig Veda, uh, poem 129 says, in the beginning was darkness, out of darkness came desire. And desire is that thing, that spark in us, that moves us from one thing to the next. I want this, I want this, I want this. And in Hinduism and really in all the world's religions, the idea is desire drives us from wanting one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, because it's a long chain that takes you back to the source of desire, and it is the, the sort of the, the crumbs on the trail, each desire. And the egoistic mystic starts that trail by wanting, 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 wanting. And one of the beautiful things about Hinduism is there's no condemnation for that wanting. It's continue to want, continue to want. But that wanting will never be satisfied until you achieve the, the reunion with the one. So the egoistic mystic is the first stage. And I remember treating for new jobs and new, uh, new everything. And it didn't satisfy. The second stage of mysticism is the tribal or the partisan mystic. This is where we graduate from it's all about me to it's all about us. It's our group. It's our party. You see this in politics quite frequently. Um, one really smart guy I know says, politics and religion are interwoven. You cannot separate them. And that a lot of people who are really deeply politically committed and not quote-unquote religious are really religious in their politics. And this partisan tribal attitude is a mystical state. Even if you don't know it, it's a mystical state because that trail is taking you from egoistic desire to tribalistic desire. What can we do? What can we accomplish? Our church says, our teacher says, and this is what the tribal um, mode of mysticism does. Um, I've known people, and I've been that person over the years, who finds a teacher, a good teacher or an author. And when I start reading them or I listen to that teacher, you know what I have to do? With all my friends, I have to get them to come and learn what I'm learning because this is the way. We have the way. I did this when I was in the Christian movement. I did it when I moved over into the New Thought movement. It's part of the one. The infinite I am in the Bible, this is the, the way I do the Bible course, as you read through the Bible, you get to Exodus. It, it moves from I am to we are as uh, the, the people go to Mount Sinai and form the, the nation of Israel. This is a mystical experience, tribal experience. And then the third mystical stage or mode is the analytical mystic. This is the individual who has the experience of the one in the ego. The ego gets transformed. There's a connection to the one. I find my group of people and we're, you know, the group. But then after a time, as Scott Peck goes into this in some detail in the different drum, he says, after we've had enough egoic experiences and tribalistic experiences, we have enough to begin to critique and self-reflect. And this third mode of mysticism says we start to look back and go, I don't know about this. I don't know about this group. I'm not sure I believe all their teachings. I'm not sure I like what this teacher is saying. The Buddhists have a saying for this stage. When you meet the Buddha on the road, anybody heard this? When you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. When I teach this in the college at the class, the students are always, that sounds terrible. It's not literal. It's just Buddhism recognizes that in that state of questioning, wondering, it's time to break away from the teacher and find your own path. 
You can't rely on the group or your ego. You've got to question it. So this mystical stage is one of the most troubling. It's the dark night of the soul. It's the one I had when I was in college, when I had that mystical experience, and then it subsided. It went away. Um, I think this is the one that is not probably dealt with enough in many of our um, churches internationally. I'm talking about all religion in general. Um, we don't spend enough time, I think, talking about the un Muting of the mystery through the darkness. The psalmist, um, Psalm 139, says this. He says, Even though I am in the depths of darkness, O Lord, you are there. Darkness is as light to you. Now think about that for a moment. This is a kind of mystical mode that requires faith because it's that mode of the adolescent who is in that place of crisis mystically and says, I don't feel the presence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet there is a kind of mystical numinous presence according to the, the mystics from all traditions that says there is the presence of absence. If you ponder that for a moment, you get it. There is something present that is absence. And that absence causes things to happen. I mentioned the underworld experience, going into Hades. That absence is necessary for the rest of the ascent. And then finally, in the fourth mode of consciousness, there is the mystical mystic. And this is that stage of mysticism where there is such complete surrender and complete reliance and complete trust that we feel like we are back in the arms of the Father again. Remember the infants, you've known the Father the adolescents, you've gone through the challenges, and then the mature ones, you've known the Father again. And there is a, a sense of being able to take heart in seeing, and I'm going to speak this to, to every one of us here as a suggestion, that as we move through this spiritual journey, don't get caught up in the stereotype as a mystic, as one who is always in a state of ecstatic bliss, because that really limits the mystical experience. It's my favorite. I'll confess, I prefer that state of mystical bliss, peace, calmness, and that's where I go for. To me, that's the centers of spirit, for spiritual living. The genius of the centers is that it is a place where you go to re be reminded that that is the goal. That's where we're moving to. I had a ministerial student come to me a few years ago and said, I think I'm going to leave the center for spiritual living. I said, why? He said, because all they talk about there is light and love and they don't talk about the dark stuff. I said, well, do you go to McDonald's to get your car cha oil changed? Well, what the hell does that have to do with anything? I said, the genius of, of the Center for Spiritual Living and why they started back in the early 1900s is because many of the churches that they were going to were giving them the dark side often. And the, the, there weren't centers then. There were just teachers that said, come over here, we'll teach you more about the light. And by the way, these teachers, these new thought teachers, never asked these people to leave their other churches. They said, you can get part of the message over here, and you can get part of the message here. So for me, the Centers for Spiritual Living are those beacons of light where people, where we all come in often from our adolescent lives during the week. You, you know what I'm talking about? The challenges, the crap that hits the fan, the stuff that makes me feel like I'm not a mystic when I really am, and we come back to the centers for spiritual living, and what we hear in those churches is you're on the journey, and the goal is this being encircled by the love in the hands of God where you are that mature one who is known by the Father in an intimate way as you were in the beginning of that mystical experience. And in that journey through the valley, that's where we're headed. 
So as I close this morning, let me just encourage each of you. In fact, let's just take a moment and do a short little meditation here. Can we, can we do that? Is that? All right. So let's just take a moment. Take a breath. And maybe just ask ourselves, each of us, to, to question maybe the way we viewed the term mystic. The way we viewed the idea of mystical experience. And that if it's true that we are all in the circle of the one, that each of us is a cell in the body of God. And that all things, all things flow from the fountainhead from one level down to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, into this visible material realm, and that there is a golden chain of connection between the top, the middle, and the bottom, that the mystery suffuses every single part of it, the darkness, the light, the disappointments, the appointments, falling in love, falling out of love, COVID-19 protests, all of this, if we can keep in sight the connection of all of these challenges to the one mystery, it's possible that it will keep us from hating and fighting with each other as if it's something to be taken so personally. I want to take a moment to give thanks to the Infinite One for manifesting in so many ways every single one of us and it's my prayer for each person who is listening to this that the awareness and experience of the mystery permeates every single thought every single emotion and every single action we take and so it is blessings thank you